Hello and welcome to our third Medicine 360 podcast, where we explore medicine and the arts. My name is Vinay Mandagiri, I'm a fourth year medical student at the University of Bristol, and I'm one of a team of people interested in the medical humanities. I'm here with Dr. Ahmed Hankir, who's an academic clinical fellow in general adult psychiatry at South London and the Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. He's also a senior research fellow at the Centre for Mental Health Research in association with Cambridge University. Today we're going to be talking about mental health, stigma, performing arts and reaching out to vulnerable communities. Dr. Hankir, thank you so much for joining us today. So um, my first question is, uh, in a lot of your work you call yourself the wounded healer. Who is the wounded healer? Who is the wounded healer? Um, It's uh, an important question. How how do I respond to that question? You know, I remember actually asking the, the president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, his name is Dr. Adrian James, and I asked him, who was Dr. Adrian James? And uh, that was in my capacity as uh, editor of the Registrar, which is the magazine for the uh, uh, Royal College of Psychiatrists Psychiatric Trainee Committee. And uh, here we are, and you are posing that very same question to me. So I, I want to um, quote a role model of mine, uh, Malcolm X, also known as Al-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz. And uh, it's a very powerful quote. It goes something like this. Uh, Why am I as I am? To understand that of any person, his whole life from birth must be reviewed. All of our experiences fuse into our personality. Everything that ever happened to us is an ingredient. So who am I? I think I'm shaped. I'm shaped by my uh, life experiences and and my values and my faith, for example. I I'm I, I identify as both a mental health care provider and a mental health care receiver. So I I I call myself, if you like, the wounded healer. And um, Carl Jung used the term the wounded healer as an archetypal dynamic to describe a phenomenon that may take place in the relationship between analyst and analysand. And um, Jung discovered the wounded healer archetype in relation to himself. For Jung, it is your own hurt, which gives you your measure of your power to heal. So that, in other words, the deeper the wound, uh, the, the, the better a healer you are. And I, I have lived experience um, of psychological distress, mental health difficulties. I would describe myself as a survivor. And um, it continues. It continues to influence my modus operandi, um, that lived experience. And I would say, and it's not just me, I think many other people who have lived their living experience, especially doctors, would say that um, it has uh, made us better human beings. It's made me more insightful. It's made me uh, more driven and uh, more, more empathic. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on this, I'm on this, we're on this journey, Irv and I, you know, and I'm constantly uh, discovering uh, aspects of of my identity, um, if you like, and maybe even 
this interview will um, will be revelatory, and um, I will. It might yield even um, more insights and into who I am and uh, what I stand for. You mentioned that you yourself have gone through quite a lot of trauma um, in your life. That obviously, you know, it's a, it can be a challenging subject for people to talk about. Could you first perhaps tell us a little bit about what you've gone through? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so I was born in Belfast. I was uh, raised in Dublin. And um, my, my parents, they migrated from Beirut to Belfast. There was a uh, civil war that was... Uh, raging in Lebanon at the time. But in, in 1982, when I was born, this was during the Troubles in in um, in Ireland. And Belfast was one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Um, so my mother said that it was like jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um, so I think um, conflict, trauma, um, cast a... Uh, almost, uh, in a sense, a tragic hue on my upbringing because you're surrounded by carnage and, and, and destruction and um, death is seemingly ubiquitous. Um, so I think that definitely influenced my, my upbringing. I mean, uh, the, 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 the war in the Lebanon, um, it was a brutal and it was a bloody uh, conflict and uh, many people, were killed and uh, uh, family members, friends of my mother um, and my, my father also. So um, I think that definitely kind of influenced um, my my development. Um, I moved to England. Uh, I was what nine years old. Lived in England for I think four or five years, and then we relocated to to, to Lebanon. Um, this was during the aftermath of the war. This was in 1995. We didn't have 24-hour electricity, for example. Um, you could see buildings, um, bullet bullet holes um, all over them. And we only had one road connecting the, the south of Lebanon to the north of Lebanon. Um, so, and it was also challenging for me because I was... I was born and raised in in Ireland in the UK, and then to move to to Lebanon, and even I mean, I might look because of the complexion of my skin or my appearance, and you know, I might look on the outside or on the surface Lebanese, but I didn't speak Arabic at the time, for example. So, kind of adjusting, really. Um, there was a language barrier, um, and people would even refer to me as as in Arabic is called Ajnabi, the foreigner. Reminds me of. Yeah. Albert Camus and his book, L'Etranger, The Outsider, you know? So, I mean, you, so you, you go to Lebanon, they, they call you a foreigner, you come, to, you come to the UK and, you know, they, they kind of perceive you as, as an immigrant almost. I, I, so I, I came back to the UK when I was 17 because, you know, prospects weren't looking too good for me in the Lebanon. War has far-reaching ramifications on the economy, for example, and opportunities. And my first job when I came back was working in a kebab van in in Malvern Hills, and 
the, the, the customers would ask me, do you speak English? <laughs> so <laughs> well, here I am in Lebanon, people calling me foreigner. I come to the UK and people are asking me if I speak English. So I guess the point is, you know, where, you know, where do I belong? You know, and uh, somebody once said that they felt like they were too Eastern to be Western and too Western to be Eastern. Um, you know, so you can really, I mean, you could really uh, have an identity crisis. And I think I did. I think I did um, as, a, as a teenager um, during medical school, which was uh, incredibly uh, challenging. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so just kind of migration um, is traumatic. And we know that are higher rates of schizophrenia, uh, for example, in both first generation and second generation immigrants. Um, mm. And then there's culture shock and culture clash and... Um, so all of these kind of elements um, are, uh, as I said, kind of um, a clashing um, uh, with each other. And um, you discover how utterly beholden you are to the power and mercy of your mind. And I think that definitely uh, was a factor that influenced my decision to choose psychiatry as a career. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, and I think there are a lot of people, uh, myself included, who do somewhat understand that sort of identity crisis as to where where do I belong? Mm. Who exactly? Who exactly am I? Um, so let's talk a little bit about stigma and mental health because that's where a lot of your work fits in. If I if I'm correct. Sure. Sure. Okay. So let's start off by defining mental health stigma. So Irving Goffman, um, he is arguably the, um, well, he was the president of the American Sociological Association, and he's one of the most highly, highly cited scholars in the fields of the of the social sciences and humanities. He defined stigma as a deeply discrediting attribute that reduces the bearer from a whole unusual person to a tainted and discounted one. The individual is thus disqualified from full social acceptance. So it's a deeply discrediting attribute, stigma. What is that attribute? That could be mental illness. That could be your ethnicity. And we know that people from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds are overrepresented both in the criminal justice system and uh, uh, mental health services. What else could that attribute be? It could be your faith. We know that Islamophobia is a growing problem in the West, for example. So, I mean, there are kind of multiple layers of... of um, uh, stigma, uh, disadvantage, discrimination, and this is what we know as intersectionality. Uh, so someone, for example, from a black, Asian, minority ethnic background who is a practicing Muslim and who has mental illness, they have what you call the triple stigma. That's the triple whammy. And unsurprisingly, outcomes in um, that group are poor. Now, we spoke about how mental health-related stigma is rampant in the medical profession, in in in, in healthcare, um, in the National Health mm. Service, we have, for example, uh, the the tragic case of Dr. Daksha Emson. She was a brilliant psychiatrist with bipolar affective disorder, and she tr- and she killed herself and her three month old baby daughter Freya during a psychotic episode. And so, an independent inquiry into her death concluded that she was the victim of stigma in the National Health Service. So, I mean, that simply can't continue. Uh, uh, despite the availability of effective treatment, many people with mental health difficulties, especially doctors, especially medical students, continue to suffer in silence. And I really need to emphasize that point. 
many people with mental health difficulties continue to suffer in silence despite the availability of effective treatment. That simply can't continue. So we need to challenge stigma. So um, we need to pioneer innovative ways to break down the barriers to mental health care, to reduce mental health-related stigma. But any anti-stigma program has to be evidence-based and data-driven. We have to, to emphasize innovate. The Canadian Psychiatric Association, for example, said conventional teaching on mental health alone will not reduce stigmatizing attitudes in medical students. So I pioneered the Wounded Healer, which can be described as an innovative method of teaching that blends the power of the performing arts and storytelling with psychiatry. The argument we're making is how can you educate an audience if you can't engage them? So what I literally do is I as I reenact scenes from famous films, I recite poetry. The Wounded Healer has been integrated into the medical school curriculum of four universities in the UK, Cambridge University, King's College London, the University of East Anglia and Dundee, to 75,000 people in 19 countries and five continents worldwide. So I, I, I rock up I rock up at King's College London, Greenwood Lecture Theatre, phase three medical students. They've been subjected to, let's be honest now, a day of boring symposium uh, lectures. There's a young man sat in the front uh, uh, row. I kid you not. He is snoring, saliva (laughs) moving down his face. He's not thinking because he's asleep. Everyone else is thinking, oh, no, death by PowerPoint, right? And then yeah. what I do is I try to galvanize them with, um, I don't know if you've seen that film, Pulp Fiction, that scene with uh, Samuel L. Jackson, John Travolta, Ezekiel 2517. It's an evocative scene, if, <laughs> if you like, which, I mean, it's, it's intense. Um, I, I can't deny that. I mean, but one thing is for sure, it doesn't elicit indifference. And then I take people on the, I take my audiences on a journey. I punctuate the wounded healer with facts and evidence derived from empirical research. But I also, um, it's also kind of interspersed with references to the humanities. We spoke about the health humanities, which can be broadly described as the application of art and literature to medicine. So I actually share my recovery journey from impoverished and suicidal and hopeless service user to empowered and multi-award winning uh, mental health service provider. And I- I've said this before, actually, in a recent podcast, that I identify more as a survivor than I do as a psychiatrist. How do you think that affects your work, the fact that you you almost identify yourself on the side of your patients more than uh, on the side of the profession, well, if that's the correct wording? Well, the recurrent theme, if you read the autobiographical narratives of Vinay, of doctors who have lived the living experience of mental health difficulties. A motive or a recurrent theme is that you have become more insightful, you have become more empathic, and you have become more determined. So whenever I provide care to someone who has mental health difficulties, I can really empathize. And don't get me wrong, far be it from me to impose my own story or narrative on anyone. Everyone's story is unique. But the point I'm making is I can I can relate to an extent I know that this person is, uh, is suffering, is struggling, um, is likely being uh, stigmatized and dehumanized and, and ostracized. And, and so I want to make sure that I am never a source of mental health stigma. Just because I have lived experience, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm exempt. Um, and we know that, the, that psychiatrists can, there's something called a physician bias, 
whereby healthcare professionals, especially psychiatrists, tend to have negative views about um, the recovery of uh, people recovering from mental health difficulties, for example. So, you know, I don't want to be a potential source of uh, stigma myself. Um, so, and I'm vigilant. So whenever I meet someone, I, I engage in introspection. I try to be brutally honest with myself and I want to provide uh, the person who rece- is receiving care from me that that safe space, that sanctuary um, where they can where they can recover, where they can heal. So you you see your trauma, as it were, as a way to connect with with your patients better. H- how do you think, for example, how do you think doctors who haven't gone through the process that you've gone through, how do you think we can start to learn that form of connection? Yeah, I mean that's a really um, important question, and thank you for asking it. I'm I'm not saying that you have to have lived a living experience of mental health <laughs> yeah, of course, to be. Yeah. Em, em, empathic, um, not at all. I, I think you need humility. Um, I think you need to provide uh, mental health care that is uh, culturally and faith sensitive. Um, I mean, I think what, what, what can help is reading uh, novels, fiction, autobiographical narratives, um, attending the Medical Film Festival MedFest, uh, for example, which you may have uh, heard of before. Um, the founder is uh, Dr. Cameron Ahmed. He's a consultant psychiatrist. He's currently based in Sydney in, in, in Australia. But, I mean, just by watching films that have a mental health theme, um, you can kind of, like, get a, get a better understanding of the subjective experience of uh, mental health difficulties. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've said that. And obviously the whole um, ethos behind the Medicine 360 project is the value of humanities to medicine um, and dealing with those abstract challenges in medicine, uncertainty, connection, mortality. Um, these are not the sorts of issues that you deal with in um, science or just everyday clinical medicine. You need that that human touch and, and looking to the humanities can really help. Let's talk a little bit about performing arts specifically yeah. because The Wounded Healer is is a performance. It's all about um, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's you performing your experience. What is the value that performing arts has? Well, I mean, I, I mean the, the performing arts, um, you know, it's, for example, The Wounded Healer is theatrical. Um, and you can elicit kind of, you know, emotional uh, responses. You can kind of penetrate the limbic system. And, um, you know, years after I delivered the Wounded Healer, um, people who attended would contact me, you know, and they would say that was unforgettable. You know, that was consciousness raising, soul stirring or, or whatever. And I think that the, the, the performing arts and storytelling, they do wield a, a, a colossal power so I'm not, I'm not dismissing um science um or whatever you want to call it neurobiology or neuroscience i i mean i, I mean i think it's boring but i'm not saying that i'm not saying that uh, we don't need it of course we do uh, we need to uh, adopt a holistic approach um in the treatment of mental health difficulties which incorporates uh, spirituality and the humanities and these are often i, I think um neglected or, or, or dismissed and 
I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's helpful. Yeah, it it speaks to that idea that people may forget what you say, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the 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 wound healer, which as I said, has been described as an innovative method of teaching that blends the power of the performing arts and storytelling with psychiatry. Um, I mean, I, I share my recovery journey, and so um, there. There, I'm, I'm making, I'm, I'm rendering myself vulnerable. Uh, but I think vulnerability, I think authenticity, are are necessary ingredients to to connect with, not only kind of audiences, uh, but also but also patients. What exactly inspired you to take on such a big project? Yeah, it is a huge, it is a huge project, and I, I took three years out of my. Training and you know initially it was self-funded. Nobody heard of me when I, you know, first uh, came out with with the wounded healer back in two thousand and fourteen. And it was uh, I think I mentioned it was self-funded, self-funded, and I was putting myself out there. Whereas now it's different. You know now um, people are contacting me. I'm, I'm inundated with the requests, and um, I'm in a position now where actually um, I I am unable uh, to accept invitations unless. Um, they, you know, for example, fund uh, travel and, if necessary, accommodation. Um, there's no speaking. I don't usually ask for. A, I don't ask for a speaking fee. Um, but um, so uh, debilitating, though the symptoms of mental illness are, the stigma that's attached to it can be far worse. And I'm not the only person who says that. Many people have mental health difficulties uh, say that and are saying that uh, mental health stigma is is killing people. And so we have to challenge it. We have to reduce it. We have to kind of contribute to this cultural revolution to erase the stigma of, of mental health difficulties, which is gaining uh, global momentum and, and traction. But when I first kind of started, I was like, it felt like I was, um, it felt like I was doing it to an extent all by my all by myself. But I mean, I I, I felt it. You know, I I felt the fire of stigma. Um, why is it? Why is it that people would be empathetic towards those who have a, a chronic condition like cancer, for example, but yet they would dehumanize and shun and ostracize someone who has who has mental illness? When both these are both illnesses, they both need care and compassion and treatment. Um, and I was indignant. I was outraged. I, I couldn't believe it, you know. And um, I was, I mean, I was so close. Uh, to ending my own life um, because of of how excruciating and uh, agonizing it was, both the kind of the symptoms, but also how kind of society reacted, and that and that that's unacceptable. That is unacceptable. So I just took it upon myself. I felt it was incumbent upon me. And so, yeah, I took two, three years out of my training. And as I said, I delivered the wounded healer to over 75,000 people uh, throughout the world. Um, and, um, you know, I continue. I can I continue to campaign against the mental health stigma because we need to normalize kind of mental health problems as we do physical health problems. There needs to be a parity of esteem. I wanted to speak a little bit about mental health in the Muslim community because this is this is really quite something unique what do you think are the challenges of teaching about mental health and campaigning about mental health issues within this particular community 
So, I mean, thank you for asking, Vinay. You know, so I kind of, I've been teaching about Islamophobia and uh, Muslim mental health now over the last five or six years. And I've, I was fortunate to co-edit a textbook on Islamophobia and psychiatry published by Springer. Um, the uh, co-editors are senior members of the American Psychiatric Association. One of them was Professor Rania Awad at Stanford University, who presented her research findings on Muslim mental health to Barack Obama in the White House. Um, uh, I mean, only last year, um, we are all familiar with the atrocity that occurred in Christchurch in, in, in New Zealand. And I was in, in England at the time, but I, I, I mean, I, I played in that mosque. I used to work in uh, New Zealand as a psychiatric registrar. And so I played in that very mosque where uh, Muslims uh, were massacred. And so I felt uh, I experienced a debilitating episode of psychological distress that was kind of triggered by the Christchurch mosque terror attack. And then consequently, the New Zealand government contacted me and they asked me if I could review a, a research proposal. Um, they, the request for was, was for one million New Zealand dollars. And it was all about the kind of the psychological consequences of the Christchurch mosque terror attack. And obviously, I, I, I authorized it. I said, "Yeah, this is you know this is absolutely necessary." Um, we know, we know. If you look at uh, Jonas Kunst, um, he's a professor of cultural um, psychology, I think, at the University of Oslo in Norway, and he he developed and he validated the perceived Islamophobia scale, and he revealed that. It was a decent sample size. It recruited 1,400 participants, Muslims from the UK, France, and Germany. And he revealed that there was an association between Islamophobia and psychological distress. Um, also, I mean, that's, so that's kind of an aspect of, of, of Muslim mental health, if you like. Um, I mean, there are other kind of aspects. Uh, for example, uh, the American Muslim Health Professionals, a- AMHP, identified mental health literacy as the number one public health uh, priority for Muslims in the US. And I would argue it's also the number one public health priority for Muslims in the UK. And what is mental health literacy? Knowledge, according to Anthony, Professor Anthony Joram at Melbourne University, knowledge and beliefs about mental disorders which aid their their recognition, management or prevention. Knowledge and beliefs about mental disorders which aid their recognition, management or prevention. But what's happening is that many members of the Muslim community, when they experience psychological, perceptual or behavioral disturbances, they're attributing that to supernatural causes as opposed to uh, mental illness. Um, so yeah. natural causes can be, for example, possession by a malevolent uh, entity. There's something called jinn possession. Jinn are like this. These are like they're like sentient beings. They can they can see us, but we can't see them. And, we, and they have been endowed with free will. And Muslims believe that will, they will also be held accountable in the hereafter on the day of judgment. So that's what's happening. And so what they're doing is they're going to these self-proclaimed faith healers, and that kind of industry is not regulated in the UK and they are being abused by these self-proclaimed faith healers financially, psychologically, physically, and and and, and there are harrowing reports that these people who are at their most vulnerable are also being sexually abused. But don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. They, I mean I I I mean there it is a legitimate practice in for example the Muslim majority uh world. I'm obviously I'm a psychiatrist working for the National Health Service. And so I follow uh, steadfastly 
follow the guidelines by, for example, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, or you know, and all, obviously all views are my own, but I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm an academic clinical fellow in general adult psychiatry at the um, at South London and Morsley NHS Foundation Trust. So we have our own kind of local guidelines, if you like. So if somebody does come with psychological, perceptual, behavioral disturbances, they might be a Muslim. I would do. I would rule out an organic vote for their for their presentation. I would do whatever blood tests. I would, um, and then once we've done that, you know, whatever imaging of the head, then we would also take into consideration um, that they might have some kind of mental illness. Um, but I think we should definitely. I I, I wouldn't personally um, discuss my religious views. I would if the person receiving care from me identifies as Muslim and has asked to speak to a um, a faith leader, then I think we should have that type of service av- available. And there are um, uh, psychiatric services, I know, in the United States, for example, or in, in, I just, I delivered the wounded healer as a grand round in Doha in Qatar. We can just refer them to uh, Muslim uh, faith uh, leaders or, 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 or healers, um, the kind of, you know, the ones who are, um, the the ones who are legitimate. So I think that would be part of um, kind of providing people with mental health difficulties with holistic care. I think that there's a huge amount of uh, intersection between culture, religion, and people's perception of mental health and mental well-being, which isn't really that well addressed, well, not least in the undergraduate curriculum in medicine. And I think it's really good that we have um, psychiatrists who are culturally aware, who know about, um, for example, like you said, a jinn possession in, in Islam. So, so being aware of these constructs that people might hold to their perceptual um, disturbances is is really really important. Of course, it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because because unless we are respectful and we have that kind of humility and sensitivity um i for example i mentioned that i used to work in new zealand and the the kind of the the, the maori are the the indigenous the, the minority um population in new zealand and they are also overrepresented in uh, mental health services and they would attribute kind of voice hearing for example to uh possession by evil spirits and this they is called makutu and mm. what you would what we would do is we would actually refer them to the experts in Maori culture, and we, we call them Kei Takawenga. Um, so I would, I mean, actually, uh, that's probably an advertisement for working in New Zealand for at least a year. But I mean, it's fantastic what you just said, Benai, because I don't, I need to have that. If I had a patient who um, identifies um, as, as Hindu, um, then what I would do is I would need to show that kind of humility and say, I don't know anything about that. Um, so that's the humility that we need. A few questions that were asked by the rest of the Medicine 360 team. Um, Someone was asking a little bit about sort of proportionality. You have gone through a lot of trauma in terms of, you know, massive world events like the Lebanon War. Yeah. And we are currently in what is being described as the COVID crisis. Yes. Proportionally, in your opinion... Are we in a crisis at the moment? Yeah, um, I, I, I mean that's a thing. I mean it might be um, subjective, you know, the, the the definition of of a crisis. You know, like you know, I yeah. lived I lived in Lebanon in 1996, and there was 
you know, there was conflict and bombs were being dropped and uh, you could you could see, you could see the, the destruction was was ubiquitous. You could see dead bodies thrown on the streets. You could see, I mean, so my definition of crisis, I think is perhaps, I mean, don't get me wrong. These are unprecedented time and the death toll is is horrific. I mean, what we're approaching 44,000. So um, I've, you know, I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the situation um, is, is, it's, it's not easy, is it? It's, 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 it's extreme almost, but you know, I mean, when you've gone through certain life experiences, like for for me, it's not. I don't find it so challenging. Um, but that, you know, because of my, you know, because of uh, my my journey, if you like. Um, but I appreciate and I and I com- completely understand and empathize how other people might find it um, uh, challenging, and um, so hence, kind of like you know, the importance of of uh, social connectedness and. Um, you know, I mean, uh, the Royal College of Psychiatrists have released kind of multiple uh, guidelines about how we can salvage our sanity. And I mean, during these trying times, and I mean, this is going to be ha- have both kind of short and long term effects on our mental health and psychological well-being. And, I've, you know, I mean, multiple articles published in The Guardian about how there will be a tsunami of people mm. kind of, uh, you know, accessing mental health services, um, all kind of all types of uh, mental disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, anxiety. Um, you could have, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder and, um, you know, fears of contamination. And, you know, this pandemic will just, um, is just a nightmare for people who um, have that particular, you know, type of um, obsession. Um, so are we in a crisis? Um, I, think, um, I, think, I think the majority of people would say yes. We are in a crisis, mm. but personally, um, I you know because as I said, I'm just I guess I'm just, I'm just kind of emphasizing because of my my journey. I, I I I wouldn't call this a crisis. I think every death is tragic, and we should you know uh, and um, we should do our very best to uh, to to prevent uh, you know uh, the, the death of a single uh, person. You know, let alone tens of thousands, um, and each person has a you know has a family. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it is very obvious. It is very, it is very traumatizing. Hence, I think why I would hypothesize that there will be increased rates of PTSD and other uh, mental disorders. Um, we, we have quite a lot of, uh, medical students listening into our podcasts. Um, and, um, one thing I, I did see somewhere that you put that you should be careful with the company you keep. Yeah. Um, when you're younger could you say a little bit more about that? I mean, I would say, I mean, especially during, during medical school, you know, because, you know, you know, the, the, the notorious hidden curriculum, for example, and, you know, the, 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 the culture can really be toxic, you know, because people are, you know, are fiercely competitive and, um, you know, for example, lecture notes and uh, your best friend might conceal the lecture notes which might, um, you know, improve the, uh, the results that you would get in exams. So when I um, when I say that you should be careful about the company that you keep, um, I guess what I'm saying is to protect your mind and to protect your heart, uh, because these people who we call friends, um, who we kind of make ourselves vulnerable uh, to, um, can help us, but they can also hurt us and they can harm us. Um, so I guess I'm saying don't you know don't be naive, but also don't be too suspicious. You know, um, no man is an island. Um, you know, so we do need that support network especially during medical school, which is uh, kind of incredibly uh, challenging. Um, but um, as, as, uh, as I said, uh, the people that we confide in 
the, the people that we uh, put our trust in. Uh, we need to be careful about that. We need to be selective. Um, so that's just something to to take into consideration. I mean, so that's why I, I'm. I mean, it helps. Actually, there was a paper that was published about this um, last month about how kind of senior and more senior uh, doctors, um, if they share, if they embrace their vulnerability and if they share, you know, their recovery story and their lived living experience of mental health difficulties. Um, that actually can re- actually improve attitudes to, bo- to both psychiatry and mental illness. That was a randomized study that they conducted. Um, so I think that's what we need to do. Mm. We need to have more what we call experts by experience featuring yeah. in the kind of uh, the, in the in the curriculum. Definitely, we need we need people who have who've got that experience and can and can pass it on. Um, so I think that comes towards the end of our of our podcast today. Um, have you got any recommendations as to where our listeners should go next to find out more about you, your projects, and things that you're really interested in? Um, I mean, if you, you can by all means follow me um, on Twitter, Ahmed Hanker, um, also known as Zunid Healer. I've got my, my website. You can contact me through my website. I've got a YouTube channel, uh, Mental Health with the Wounded Healer. So please do subscribe, support, share. Um, I try to produce at least one uh, clip or vlog um, every week. Um, mental health difficult, you know, if experiencing psychological distress in any of its many forms, you're not alone. You might feel like you're alone. It might feel like recovery will elude you, and that you will never recover and it will, will never get better. And I certainly felt that way. Um, you can lose all hope, for example. You can succumb to, to despair. But, I mean, the, the, the take-home message is that recovery is a reality for the many, not for the few. I'm not going to say everyone recovers. Uh, I don't want to misinform people. Unfortunately, and I think we're not doing enough for people who have serious mental illnesses. But certainly, recovery is a reality for the many, not for the few. So, seeking help is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. Effective treatment is available. Don't punish yourselves. Don't suffer in silence. Reach out. Reach out. And if you're well yourself, then you should be you should I would say it's actually incumbent upon you to reach out to other people who are who are not well. You know, this is we're, we're you know we're studying medicine. You know, if we can't be caring and compassionate as as a as a profession, then what does that say about our species as as medics? Um so yeah, reach out, you know, reach out to other people who you think are struggling. You know, it might be that they're more irritable, they're you know, they're missing classes, you know, there are some of the kind of telltale signs. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of that, I, I share all that information and your support obviously is very much appreciated. Um, follow me on Twitter, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, Mental Health, The Wounded Healer. Um, and, um, you know, I'll be sharing uh, whatever wisdom uh, I have um, and anecdotes. And, and uh, I'll try to, um, you know, discuss some of the, latest treatment options for common mental disorders for example but i mean it's it's it it's more there's more of an emphasis on the humanities um because and you know on challenging how we can challenge mental health related stigma so um yeah you're more than welcome to 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 follow to follow me um on those kind of different uh, social media uh, platforms that's fantastic dr dr hanke uh, a really important message to end on there about reaching out to people and helping others um, when you can. On the 16th and 17th of July, 
Dr. Hank here is going to be talking about Islamophobia and mental health at the National Psychiatry Summer School Beyond the Curriculum, which is organised by Queen's University Belfast and University of Manchester's Psychiatry Society in combination with the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Thank you for listening to our Medicine 360 podcast. If you'd like to find out more about medicine and the humanities, visit medicine360.co.uk.